0: If you love in this world, life will break your heart. And that is not bad news.
1: This is Heart of the Story, and I'm Nadine Kenny Johnstone. I'm a writer and a writing coach who helps women develop and publish their memoirs and essays. But most importantly, I'm a human who's always trying to figure out what my soul is saying. Each week, I'll share stories and tips of healing, hope, and following my heart so that you'll feel inspired to follow yours. Today's conversation is with the incredibly talented writer, Charlotte Maya, whose beautiful book, Sushi Tuesdays, is now out in the world. It is a memoir of love, loss, and family resilience. And in this conversation, we discuss deep humanness, love, hope, and also the subject of suicide and encouraging those who are suffering to seek help.
0: If you or someone you know is experiencing suicidal thoughts, please call the Suicide Prevention Lifeline at 988, or you can even text 988. Help is available please ask.
1: So friends, I have an incredible author on the show today who has just released her memoir called Sushi Tuesdays, which is a memoir of love, loss, and family resilience. She is the wonderful, talented, beautiful writer, Charlotte Maya.
0: Welcome Charlotte. Thank you, Nadine.
1: I am so excited to be here with you. Oh, I'm thrilled. I'm thrilled. So April Eberhardt, who's been on the show, connected us. And right away, when I started hearing your writing, I was blown away at the beauty of it. Your ability to really get into life's hard truths, but in a way that still made me feel hopeful And that's a really hard balance to achieve, especially when you write about some devastating things. And so as soon as I started reading your work, I thought, wow, this woman knows how to write and write well. And then I found out that you had this beautiful memoir coming out and i knew i had to have you on this show and so can you tell people a little bit about the basis of sushi Tuesdays what the story is behind it
0: sure thank you so much the short story is that i was widowed when i was 39 and my kids were 6 and 8 and my husband sam had taken his own life which was a complete shock to us. I had no idea that he was suffering so much. And the story of Sushi Tuesdays, Sushi Tuesdays is really a day about self-care for Charlotte. That was the day that my therapist had an open slot. My favorite yoga class was on Tuesdays. Sometimes I'd take myself out to sushi table for one. And so, Tuesdays really became a sort of sacred day, my Charlotte Shabbat, I called them. And over the course of the next couple of years, I I did rebuild my life. I accidentally fell in love with the most eligible widower in town, and he also had two kids, and we blended our families. So there is a lot of hope and healing in my story, but it was really important to me that Sushi Tuesdays not seem like a fairy tale, that it not end with the wedding, because the truth is it's been 15 years since Sam died and since my now husband, Tim's first wife, Debbie, died. And there are still moments of grief. Our four children have still lost a parent and they've gained a step parent, and we have a beautiful blended family. And we just hold all of it. We hold the whole range of grief and joy and celebration of love and of loss. And so it was really important for me to to wrestle the words to the page in a way that was able to express all of it. Mm. And you did that
1: when I got a copy of the book in the mail, an advanced copy, and I sat down and read it. I mean, I just kept reading and reading. And I would pause to get up to go get some water, go to the bathroom. And I would just think, how was it that she's able to put it all out there? The hard and the healing, the love and the loss, and just hold space for all of it and write such a true human story. It's very hard to do as a writer to really put it all out there and resist the pull to tie it all up in a pretty bow as if everything is perfect and beautiful and wonderful. And the other thing that I was very amazed by and felt was really important was that you said the word suicide and that you spoke the story and that you refused to fall under the silent cloak that usually engulfs the survivors of suicide. So why do you think it was so important to tell the truth about what happened and say the word and speak the story?
0: Yeah, it was really important to me to give particular voice to suicide. It's a thorny and complicated death And there's a risk that stigma and shame reduce someone to their final act. And I think that's unfair and inaccurate. When the police came to tell me that Sam had died by suicide, they told me, we will tell the children that their father died, but you have to tell them how. And we recommend that you tell them the truth because you do not want them to find out from somebody else. Mm -hmm. And at a time when nothing made sense, that made sense to me Mm. to tell the truth. And I think that advice has sustained me, not just in how I communicated with my children. Now they were six and eight, so I didn't give them all the gory details, but I did tell them the truth that daddy was sick and daddy died by suicide and daddy jumped off the top of a structure. They had a lot of questions over the course of the years and they knew they could turn to me for honest answers to really difficult questions. Suicide is the 10th leading cause of death in this country, but we don't talk about it. It's the second leading cause of death in the age group from 25 to 34, which is horrific. And we do know that talking about it helps and it is hard and it is painful and it can save a life. Mm -hmm. First, I started a blog because a book was too overwhelming. So when I started my blog, which I also had called Sushi Tuesdays, Tim and I were already married by then. And when we talked about it, we together decided, because there's a lot about all of us in this book. So it was important to me that I included my husband and the kids, if I was writing about them in sort of what I was writing and made sure that they were okay with whatever I was putting out on the blog. So together we decided if by sharing my story, I could help one person, then it was worth it. And when I published my very first blog, a friend of a friend Wrote me back, gosh, I think it was within two or three days. And her brother, twin brother, had just died by suicide. And she said, Thank you for sharing your story because I feel less alone. She was my one. Mm-hmm. And so that idea too has always sustained me that if it makes a difference for one person, either one person who's suffering because they are suicidal and they are having a hard time finding their way through and it gives them hope, then that is important to me. Or if it is somebody who has lost someone to suicide, I think the statistics are something like somebody in this country alone dies every 11 minutes by suicide. It's just, it's horrifying. And we treat it as though... It were isolated cases of individual suffering, but there is a lot of suffering happening right now. And in particular, in light of the uh, COVID pandemic. So it was just really important to me. In some ways, I couldn't not talk about it. Writing the book, as you know, writing a book is really hard. And writing a book about something very painful is also hard. And there were times when I thought, I know I don't have to write this book. Mm -hmm. Nobody's making me write this book. I don't have a deadline, but the story itself felt like it was demanding to be told. Mm -hmm. And so I do hope it makes a difference in one life and another life and another life.
1: I really think it has and will because I think what you paint is an honest picture of the aftermath. What's left behind and how people are impacted. And you also show, too, the suffering that those who are contemplating suicide are going through, the deep suffering. And so, by speaking honestly about both sides, my hope is that someone will recognize themselves oh, I too am suffering and make a different choice.
0: Yes. Yeah, it was important to me to humanize the face of suicide and to remember that suicide is an illness. Depression is an illness. And we can't always choose what diseases we are afflicted with. But if there is more dialogue, more conversation, less stigma, then the act of asking for help becomes more available. Yes, And that, when I think of the mistakes Sam did or didn't make, the mistake he made was not asking for help. Mm -hmm. I have a cousin who died similar time, a year after Sam had died. And another cousin was saying, you know, Carol was fighting for her life and Sam just threw his away. It made me so angry. And I said, you know, Carol had chemo and doctors and therapists and carpool and ladies on the front porch bringing casseroles and hugs. And Sam was fighting just as desperately, but he was fighting alone. And it's that isolation that can be fatal. And that's where I feel like speaking the truth makes a big difference because then we are less isolated. And we may still suffer, but we won't have to suffer alone. And that is what I think makes the biggest difference.
1: Yeah, that was such a powerful scene. So poignant. I remember the moment when I read that scene and just kind of put the book down because it just felt so truthful about how much isolation a suffering person is in and how the silence and isolation makes us suffering even more. So asking for help and or receiving of help is, is such a huge and vital part, but we can't know this unless we talk about it. We can't know what's available or that there is support and help available unless somebody is talking about it. And we know that there are resources available. Mm -hmm. And so I think the hardest part of the grief going on this grief journey is, everybody going through grief in a different way. And then while you're hurting, also having to help and support your boys Mm -hmm. in their grief journey. And many of the things that struck me so heartwarmingly was that you kind of adopted this, like, it's all, it's all welcome. It's all welcome here. Your feelings are valid and we're going to talk about them. And if you want to cuss and swear to get it out, cool, we're going to do that in the house too. And we're not going to use other words for what happened. We're going to tell the truth. And so just the infusion of honesty and allowing, that was the word I was looking for. The allowance of the feelings was to me as a reader, just kind of like, Wow, how did she even know what to do, especially in the wake of her own mourning? How did you know what to do? <laughs>
0: <laughs> well, I had a really good therapist. I did have some good instincts and I was willing to learn. Suicide is not something I ever thought I would be an expert on, thought would be relevant to my life. And as soon as Sam died in this way, I just sort of embraced figuring out whatever I could figure out. Mm -hmm. I was so afraid. I was convinced actually that I would be ostracized because of how Sam died. But like I said, I was very transparent from the very beginning about how he died and what had happened and what I knew and what I didn't know. And What I found was the exact opposite of being ostracized. And so that was something that encouraged me also to continue to be honest and as kind as I possibly could and as transparent as I possibly could. Because even though I was afraid it would push people away, and some people, of course, it did, but way more people were gathered together. It is incredible in a small room of people how many lives have been touched by suicide and how few have talked about it until they know they are in a safe non-judgmental space. Oh gosh, it's such a relief to have those moments. And with the kids, you know, every child comes as they come Mm -hmm. and their griefs were different from each other. And it is very interesting to me that now with four children, all four of their griefs, their processes are unique to them. And grief is not a one and done deal. It can be a muscle, a skill that we practice. We don't really want to, but The truth is that the cat dies and grandma dies. And I wish I could have protected all of my children from this particular experience for as long as possible. But if you love in this world, life will break your heart. Mm -hmm. And that is not bad news. It is good news, but it is very painful. Mm -hmm. So learning how each of the kids needed their support. And, you know, sometimes we made mistakes too. And that's allowed. Like you said, it's allowed. Mistakes are allowed. And then we learn from those. So just staying in the game. I'm such a big fan of showing up, bringing your A game. Sometimes your A game is really only a C minus. That's good enough. Sometimes it's an F. All right. Well, there'll be another game tomorrow. (laughs) I love it. And
1: you call them the Janes, the Janes that showed up for you. All of these, mostly women who just came and showed up. They showed up. What are some of the things that they did or said that made the greatest impact? Because, as you'd also talk about in the book, sometimes people don't know what to say. So they don't say anything at all or they say the wrong thing and it's even more painful. So, for those listening who are thinking, I know someone who's going through something really hard and I want to help them. And I have no idea what to say or do. What did they do that really helped?
0: Mm, so many things, my personal preference, I would rather have somebody show up and say something glitchy and wrong and potentially harmful than nothing at all. Cause we can work with glitchy and we can talk about why, you know, it's all part of God's plan is an incredibly painful thing to yeah. say to somebody who has just lost someone they love, especially to suicide. God planned this. No, thank you. I don't really need that kind of God. But if I have a friend who can have that conversation with me, I'm okay with that. Yeah. Oh gosh. People showed up with all kinds of things. I had a friend come in the door. She's a ballet dancer and she just flung open the door. She was still in her jammies. She literally, when she, as soon as she found out, she went to the grocery store, she bought every gallon of ice cream that she could find. And she showed up on my doorstep laden, arms laden with bags of ice cream. There was no way that the kids and I, and even my family and, you know, whoever, how many dozen people might still have been there. There was no way we could eat it all, but it didn't matter. What mattered is she showed up. It's not about the ice cream. I mean, I love ice cream, but she shows up and she says, I'm here to fix everything, knowing that she couldn't fix anything, but the fact of showing up with ice cream is the best. One of the things that was surprising to me is sort of everybody has their own gift to bring. So I had another friend who I call her engineer Jane in the book. And she herself said, Charlotte, I have no social skills, but I have noticed that you and the kids are late to school every single day. And so from that point on at 7.45 sharp, she showed up on my doorstep with her two kids in tow. And she would make sure that we got socks, shoes, lunch, homework, backpack, out the door. She's like, Mm -hmm. let's go. And I didn't need 12 engineers on my doorstep at 7.45 in the morning. But the fact that she was that one was incredible and she did that for oh gosh it must have been months Mm. and she told me later she said you know Charlotte when you've told me that you were okay now and you would be able to get the kids to school on time she said I was a little sad actually but I was also really proud of you Mm. so I had another friend who liked to sew and one night Jason my youngest had shredded his favorite lovey which is a yellow blanket he just shredded it and then the next day he was heartbroken because not only was his father dead but now his transitional object was shredded into pieces and this other beautiful friend of mine is a seamstress and so her gift was sewing it back together i would just tell people show up in the way that is unique to you, that you can be loving and kind. And that's an amazing gift.
1: Mm, I know when I read those different examples, each person found what they were good at, what they could offer and they brought it. So I think one of the Janes came and cleared out the closet. Another Jane, I think came and brought soft pajamas or something. It was like each person. I loved engineer Jane. It's like, you know what? I may not be soft and cuddly, but I can get your kids to school on time. And that's my strong suit. And that's what was needed in the moment. So it's like just identifying your special trait
0: that you can offer Mm -hmm. is huge. It's huge. And my college best friend, she lived in New York city and So she couldn't show up on my doorstep with casseroles or show up with hugs or whatever. And what she did is she, this was pre, well, the first iPhone had just come out. So it was sort of pre-smartphones and pre a lot of social media. And she sent me an email every morning and every night for 365 days, the entire first year after Sam's death. And it was a lifeline. I woke up in the morning and first thing, kind of patted out, stumbling to find my coffee in my email. It was always short. Sometimes it was just a silly little note. Sometimes it was a rant. She was going through the world's longest divorce proceedings. And so, you know, we had a lot of grief in common. We had children who we loved and revered and also, you know, jobs and dog poop and all the things. So there's, you don't even have to be the next door neighbor in order to provide something that is just really meaningful and helpful. All those reminders that we're connected and that we love each other. That's what makes a difference. And
1: when I read that, I was like world's best roommate,
0: (laughs) right? Because
1: I mean, who, who thinks to do that, but she did and the consistency and the The length of it. It's just, it's incredible. Mm -hmm. And Then all of this is happening and there's lots of support, but there's still deep, deep grief. What was the hardest part about the grief?
0: Mm. The guilt. It was a lot easier for me to forgive Sam than it was to forgive myself for missing the clues, for just wondering what could I have done differently? What did I say? What didn't I say? Would it have made a difference? That desperate urge to turn back the clock, especially at the beginning. But the guilt, the guilt is heavy and hard. What has helped with that? Understanding that suicide is a disease. The writing has helped a lot. I would say that the writing that was healing for me was more journal writing, and I'm a terrible journaler, but the journal writing and early blog posts. When I was first sort of flexing my writing muscles and talking about Sam and then about his suicide and about our experience grieving the loss of Sam as a father, as a husband, as a brother, as a cousin, as a son, both of Sam's parents were still alive when Sam died. And it was important to me to stay connected to them as well. I would say the writing of the book took on a very different flavor. The writing of the book, I had a therapist and I had early writing for sort of therapeutic healing. The book became a matter of craft therapy helps yoga helps meditation helps the yoga class and a meditation class that i took then with the same instructor those were really essential for my healing being able to sit with the guilt being able to sit with the heartbreak and also then being able to sit with the joy it helped me to understand suicide as an illness because that helped me recognize which parts were Sam's and which parts were mine. Something my therapist said to me over and over again, Charlotte, you are a hundred percent responsible for your 50%. You don't get the kids 50%. You don't get Sam's 50%. You don't get anybody else's 50%, but you're hundred percent responsible for yours. And that was very helpful. It is sometimes hard to know which part of the 50% is mine and which belongs to somebody else, but it was very helpful for me to recognize that I could only own my part. And sometimes we do make mistakes and to own that too, and to circle around and do better the next time and to continue learning. Yeah. Such good advice. Remembering our 50%
1: especially as parents wanting to just wrap our kids in in a bubble or wanting to control everything and protect. And some of the writing, then you you had the blog and you kept writing and you're working through that grief as you're writing. How did you go from the processing on the page to craft to now I'm going to Really look at this as a story that I can present to
0: readers. I had always sort of envisioned writing a book, but then when I thought about it, a book was too big. So that's when I started the blog. And a blog post is about a thousand words, and the book is about a hundred thousand words. And so after several years of publishing weekly posts on Tuesdays, I printed out all of the pages. And it looked like a book. It would fill the big three-ring binder. And even when I put them in some sort of chronological order, they didn't really tell a coherent story. So I took a workshop from a writing coach in Los Angeles thinking, okay, maybe if I take this workshop, I'll figure out how to get all these blog posts into an order. And the workshop was fantastic, but I still didn't get the blog posts Morphed into a coherent memoir. And I heard a podcast where the people were chatting, and she said, You know, just because you've read dozens, hundreds, thousands of books doesn't mean you can write a book because you think you can write a book because you've read all of these, but you can't. And that is why you need a book coach. And I went, I need a book coach. So Then I hired this workshop instructor as a book coach. And we spent six months just creating an outline. And at the end of our work together, I had a hundred page outline. It was single space. So it was a really robust outline. And I sort of thought the book would write itself after that, which it didn't, (laughs) but I kept at it. I did a first draft. I set it aside for two weeks. I came back and looked at it and read the whole thing from beginning to end and cried for another two weeks because it just wasn't there yet. And then I kept circling back to it. Like, you know what? It's just, I can't let it go. And it wouldn't let me go either. So together, the story and I kept wrestling and working until I had several drafts later, a draft that I felt comfortable sending out to, some early readers. And so I sent it out to five early readers and then when I got it back I sort of lined up their manuscripts and looked at, you know, where where did people draw their happy faces in the same places or the LOLs or the sad faces, what places confused them, what was consistent, what was unique to each reader. And after that I had the draft that was what I used to pitch agents. Mm -hmm.
1: And you ultimately ended up working with April.
0: Yes. Yes. I was very excited. People say you should find an agent who gets your book and is really excited about it. And she has been that for me.
1: Mm -hmm. And what an amazing agent to have. She's such a good soul. April Eberhardt who has been on heart of this story. You have to go back and listen if you don't know about her because She truly believes in writers and in their story. When she works with you, it's because she believes in you and your story.
0: Yeah. She is really an advocate for mostly women. She has also some male writers, but mostly women writing all kinds of stories, but she is a fierce advocate.
1: Yes. So then you were working with her and then what was the trying to get a publisher
0: process like? it's not easy as you know and even though we know that talking about suicide is what makes a difference i think a lot of publishers were a little reluctant because it's scary and so i feel really grateful that we found a publisher who also my editor at the publisher also just got it she called and said yep i want books in hands this time next year which in publishing world is lightning fast. Yeah. So it was literally a year between when we signed the contract with the publisher and when books will be released because she also is somebody who understands that we have to talk about suicide and we can we can do it in ways that are healthy and healing and vulnerable and honest and that promote more well-being.
1: You also decided to take a chunk of the book, a short excerpt, and to send it to Modern Love, which for writers is like the holy grail of trying to get a personal essay published. If you get one in Modern Love, it is a home for beautifully written pieces that really get to reach a broad audience, which is part of what you're wanting to do in this discussion about Mm. suicide. So You took this piece about one of the Janes or some mystery person who on the first Christmas after Sam's death delivered every day for 12 days, some Christmas presents, the 12 days of Christmas. So how did you know what to take and how did you get the bravery to pitch Modern Love? And then it got accepted. Tell us about that.
0: I... I believe in the power of writing groups. And one of my writing groups in December of 2021, when we were meeting, people said, oh, you know, bring a holiday related piece. And I thought, oh, I don't have anything. And then I remembered that I actually have this story in the book about a Christmas experience right after the first Christmas after Sam's death. And so I read the chapter to the group and they really liked it. And that's when I thought, I wonder, because it's not a direct excerpt from the book, but what I thought is, I wonder if I could turn this story into a standalone piece. And just by itself, the chapter wasn't the right length for Modern Love, and it didn't sort of stand alone because it didn't have context just as the chapter by itself, but when I took that story, I thought, oh, you know, this, maybe this would work. And I had submitted to Modern Love a couple of times and been rejected, like, you know, everybody. Then when I uh, as we're getting closer then to the book coming out, and I thought maybe now would be a good time to send it to Modern Love and see if they would like it. It's very Christmas, so it really only makes sense to be in a December version of the New York Times. And so I submitted it to Daniel Jones in the fall. And I have a a wonderful publicist who I'm working with also for Sushi Tuesdays, Kim Dower, Kim from LA. And when she and I were talking about this, she said, okay, well, if you don't hear back from the New York Times by say mid-November, I have three or four other places where I think we should pitch it. So I had a plan B, C and D. And mid November I got an email from Daniel Jones that they wanted to print it over Christmas weekend. And oh my gosh, Nadine. Mm. It was it was more exciting than the book contract, I think. <laughs> it was so thrilling to get an email from Daniel Jones. And so then, you know, we had a few more edits to the piece, but not a lot before appearing on Christmas weekend, which is still like that was, I don't know, that might be the best Christmas gift I ever receive in my whole life. And it's amazing.
1: And so much good feedback. I think Cheryl Sandberg posted about it. I mean, yeah. It it struck so many people.
0: It has struck a lot of chords. And because it is, it's the holidays are hard. They are beautiful and wonderful and devastating, Mm -hmm. especially those first holidays without your person. Mm. But it can be hard for a lot of reasons. The holidays can be hard for a lot of reasons. So I think one of the reasons that this piece really struck home for a lot of people is it covered that whole range, again, that whole range of feeling happy and excited and devastated and still a little hopeful.
1: Speaking of hope, I want you to read a powerful excerpt from the book, which is chapter 42.
0: If you could read us just a little bit, I will a future with hope in 2006, I had been sailing happily along in my cliched white picket fence life with my husband, two kids, a law degree and our purebred puppy. If someone had told me then that my life in 2010 would be full of joy and love, I would have believed them. I had no reason to think otherwise. If they had predicted that I would run several days a week and that I would give up my custom kitchen in order to feed twice as many sons, I would have thought they were touched in the head. If they had told me that Sam would die by suicide when our little boys were in fact little, that I would accidentally fall head over heels for the town's most eligible widower and that I would willingly sign up for three mothers-in-law? I would have advised them to put down their glass. I might have suggested that the margarita or blood of Christ or whatever they were drinking had gone to their head. I would have backed away slowly. As soon as I was safely out of earshot, I would have called best to mock their harebrained idea of God's plan. Then Sam did die by his own hand and a genius grant seemed entirely more likely than my ability to get through a single morning without crying the mascara off my face, which was about the time that a faith-filled, hopeful, fearless Jane gave me a stone bearing this verse. I know the plans I have for you, says the Lord, to give you a future with hope. Jeremiah twenty-nine eleven. A future with hope? It was absurd. It was infuriating. It was offensive. I wanted to throw that stone through a window. I had a pretty clear idea of what my future would look like, and Sam's suicide was not part of my vision. I stuffed the stone in the back of a drawer. The thing is, though, that the verse did not read, I know the plans I have for you, says the Lord, to give you the future you hoped for, which is, I confess, often where my prayers start. When things are going as predicted and desired, then a bright future isn't hopeful, it's logical. Hope is really only meaningful when it's bleak and cold and impossibly sad. In the midst of gripping despair and overwhelming fear, hope sounded ludicrous. But hope showed up in the darkness, even if I didn't recognize her at the time. Hope whispered, I'm here. She sent emails in the dark hours while the rest of the world slept and she offered to share her milk and cookies because she couldn't sleep either. Hope showed up unannounced, happened to be in the right place at the right time. She walked toward me along the sidewalk as if we had planned to meet to help my sons choose ties for their father's funeral. Hope was contrarian. She uttered the word forgiveness while others threatened character assassination and her gentle voice echoed in quiet moments when I was alone. Hope was not afraid of my ridicule. She handed me a book, even though I didn't have the focus or the time or the inclination to read. She waited patiently. Hope was not smug. She never said, I told you so. She said, I'm so glad you're here. Hope watered the dry ground long before the tiny shoots of my new life sprouted up through the dirt, turning their tender leaves toward the sun. Hope was inflammatory. She handed me a rock with her message and she was not afraid of my despair and rage. Hope inundated me with her relentless love. Hope's tenacious message was that my story wasn't over. Life was yet unfolding love, joy, compassion, gratitude, strength, and family, not in the form that I had expected, but wholly present nonetheless. I kept the stone in my makeup drawer next to my lipstick, I had given up wearing mascara, but I still wore lipstick. I saw the stone reminder daily. And now I was stepping into the future that my Janes had hoped into existence.
1: I love that passage. I love that passage. I think it's a beautiful place to end because you do write about these hopeful moments. I won't spoil it for the readers but you hold that space for both grief and joy, loss, and also love. And I know that when they pick up this book, that they will just feel it with their whole heart. I'm so grateful that you wrote this book and I'll put the link in the show notes. It's available February 28th and people will have it on their doorsteps. Thank you so much for coming on today. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you.
0: Thank you, Nadine. Thank you so much. I'm really grateful for everything you do.
1: Oh, that was such a powerful conversation. My hope is that you will share this impactful conversation with a friend in need, and it will really bring necessary help and healing to anyone who might need it. Let us know what was impactful about this conversation. You can tag us on Instagram and give us comments. I'm at Nadine Kenny Johnstone, and Charlotte is at Charlotte Maya Writer. We would love to know what was powerful for you. And finally, books you can find Charlotte's book Sushi Tuesdays everywhere that books are sold and also my book Come Home to Your Heart is available for pre-order on Barnes and Noble Bookshop and Amazon Michelle Rado, thank you for all of your help and all that you do producing this podcast and remember everyone every heart has a story and every story has a heart see you next week